And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Michael Ferris-Smith back to the program today. Michael is a novelist and has been on Book Talk before to talk about Rivers, Desperation Road, and The Fighter. Today we'll be talking about his latest, Blackwood, which is available from Little Brown. And as a note, this interview was recorded on March 11th, prior to many of the safer-at-home orders began taking effect around the country. The cover of Blackwood is an illustration of kudzu leaves forming a skull. And all I could think was that, man, he's going to put me through the ringer yet again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Apparently, that's what the uh, graphic artist felt, too, when he read it. Because when I saw that cover, I was like, I thought it grasped the novel and so on so many different levels, you know, but in a different kind of way, in a very smart kind of way. But yeah, I figured, you know, if I'm going to write a novel, I'm certainly going to put you through the ringer. So what do you think draws you to this darker side of the human experience? I don't know, man. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot myself lately, just because I do get asked about it a lot. And I probably give a different answer every time. I think it's just the things I feel and notice. And I think it probably has to do with things like my Old Testament upbringing. I mean, the stories from the Bible were some of my earliest influences. And those stories are pretty nitty gritty, you know. And they're about things like, you know, failure and and lust and greed and struggling for redemption or struggling to do the right thing and then failing again. And the consequences are exile, death, sometimes physical, sometimes spiritual. I mean, it varies. And then, you know, I guess probably over the span of my adulthood, we've talked about this, I was kind of a wanderer and I guess I still kind of am. I don't think I'm unfamiliar with feelings of like loneliness and maybe a little bit of depression. And I can feel that in other people. And I can empathize with that in other people. So when I set out to write a novel, I guess I'm drawn towards that side of things initially. And I typically start there and I typically stay there. And like with Blackwood and even with The Fighter, I think I probably went a little further than I expected to when I started, which is fine, you know. I knew Blackwood was going to be dark and I knew it was going to be a spiral, but I was ready to embrace that. It seems like, especially with the last two novels, that sense of inevitability just kind of permeates the the entire thing. I've learned to just get out of the way of a story. I mean, I think I've kind of always realized that, but I think particularly in these last two novels, there comes a point when you, when you realize where things are headed and I don't want to manipulate them too much. You know, the story kind of takes control of you versus the other way around. Yeah, I think certain things are inevitable, but that doesn't mean you fight any less, you know, hard or courageously to avoid them. So when those stories take over, I mean, do you know it at the moment that it's got you or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I stopped sleeping for one thing. I stopped sleeping. It becomes very, um, all-encompassing, like a, you know, if I'm in car line to pick up my daughter from school and I still haven't shaken off Blackwood from that morning, or whatever story you're writing from that morning, it's really hard to explain. It just becomes a very subconscious thing that you never really get rid of. But also, like, that's when I know something else is driving, you know, and that's what you're ready for. You know, if it, if it becomes something that I think is not driven by your emotions, then it's probably it's certainly not the thing for me to be writing. Now let's jump into the book, and it starts off in 1956 in a small North Mississippi town, and there's this 11-year-old boy named Coburn, 
and his mom wants him to go do something for her. Yeah, go check on daddy. Get him for supper. That's right. I think the line is go fetch him for supper. You know, dad has has a way of hanging out out there and hiding away on bad days, you know. And Colburn knows that already. He sees the bottles almost empty. He sees the bottles almost empty. He knows it. I mean, he's he's thinking as he's walking out there, I don't really like doing this because I know what I'm going to find, what to expect, but he obviously finds something else, you know, the end of the line. I think both the mother and him kind of realizing what a chore that is for him to send him out there to get his father from the shed. Because I, I, one of the more meaningful parts of that opening scene to me is the mother's reaction to it as she kind of watches him cross the backyard, you know, with an expression on her face, kind of realizing that I don't want to send him out there to get him, and I know he doesn't want to go, but this is our routine. What becomes of this visit alters his life. Yeah. Uh, for the rest of Coburn's life and his mother's life and his father's life, it's, it's forever changed at that moment. I don't know if we should say what happens. We or... probably shouldn't. You said it right. I mean, it's one of those moments that changes any number of people forever. You know, it's the shadow that you then carry with you wherever you go for however long you live. And it turns out it's a shadow that's cast on them, but it's inside a bigger shadow that's cast over this town of Red Bluff, Mississippi. You know, when I had the idea for like this big, huge vine-covered valley, I knew there had to be a little town beside it. We start in 1956 with that scene, but then we jump ahead 20 years to this little town of Red Bluff. And unfortunately, these towns aren't too difficult to imagine. These, you know, everybody I think in small town America is from can be familiar with these towns of two to five thousand people that are really struggling to stay afloat. You know, and Red Bluff is like right in the grips of this in this moment, you know. It seems like it got it earlier than most other yeah. towns did. People have moved away. There's really no, hardly any young people there. There's hardly any children there. They don't know what to do. I mean, it's a time period in towns and even now or 20 years ago or whatever, it's hard to figure out what to do. And the people who are there are the people who have essentially always been there. So uh, you almost get this recycling of attitudes and behaviors and even stories and reactions, I think, to one another, when all you see is the same thing every day with the same people in the same spots. Now, we have this dying town, and it's one of the most durable ways to start a story, really, is a stranger comes to town. Yeah. And so we have a trio that comes to town, and they're even worse off than the town is. Somehow, yeah, they are even worse off. This trio had such a metamorphosis for me from the beginning of the novel to the, I guess, the final draft of the novel. Um, How did they start off? They started off not as developed as we see them in the end. In fact, I was about to turn in what I thought was going to be a final draft. But in that draft, the trio was kind of just on the edge of the valley at the beginning. Like they, they were just there, you know, there was no like, where do they come from? What are they doing? What are, what have they got going on in their own lives? And I wasn't real comfortable f- with that, and I couldn't figure out like who they were. And I knew if I was uncomfortable with it, and it felt a little generic to me, certainly it was going to come off that way for the reader. I mean, you can't fake that. So before I turned it, about a week before I was supposed to turn it in, I just sat down and opened up a new document, and I said, I've got to figure out like who they are, and I'm just going to write who they are and flush it out. I said, okay, I'm going to bring them into town. 
have them break down. That means I know they're coming from somewhere. They're breaking down. They're obviously going from somewhere. That's a good start. So I sat down. I described the vehicle they're in as a foul-running Cadillac. Rolls into Red Bluff as it's breaking down. And I thought, uh, I know that phrase. I've used that phrase before. Where have I used that phrase, foul-running Cadillac? And I reached over and I picked up the fighter off my bookshelf and I opened it up. And in the opening pages of that where the man and the woman abandoned the two-year-old Jack Boucher outside the Salvation Army store, they're driving a foul-running Cadillac. And I was like, well, I'll be damned. That's who they are. And it was like somebody walked into my studio and just smacked me in the back of the head. It's like, that's who they are. And immediately I went, okay, timetable, time period. It's mid-70s when Jack gets abandoned. It's mid-70s now. So this is them. They've abandoned this boy two or three days ago. They've picked up another teenage boy they have. And they're driving away and leaving. And they don't even make it out of Mississippi before this foul-running Cadillac breaks down again. That was like uh, the window opening and the breeze coming through because then I knew who they were. I knew what they had done. I had their own personalities I could develop in their reaction of where they've been and where they're going. And they really became individuals to me, and it really raised Blackwood up to the level I wanted it to be. I, I called my editor, told him what happened, and I said, well, I'm going to need a month or two because this is going to be like a big part of the story, and I have so much to say about them now. He was very happy because I think he was kind of the same way I was about them at that point. So it really elevated the novel then. So do you have an extended Michael Ferris Smith universe now? I don't know. I guess so. It was so accidental, you know. Um, It was so accidental, but I really like how it felt. It was really interesting to me. So I've been thinking, you know, about things down the road and what I might do. And I don't know. Maybe we'll see a character from some other novel that either wandered off or you know ended up somewhere else and we might see what they're doing yeah it felt very organic to me too the way it worked itself through the story and also just the irony that it's a cadillac that's downbeat and <laughs> that's torn up. right that's right you know i mean if you're gonna have some characters go chugging along might as well put them in a big old caddy and have some black smoke poofing out of the tailpipe well you said early on that the development of the characters was kind of thin they themselves are emaciated they just are in the most dire circumstances they are in the most dire circumstances which gave me the opportunity to let that man become what he became it's like you know you can tell they've been through a lot and you can tell there may have been a point where they really tried and i think that the the teenage boy still is but it's like when they get to the edge of this valley and this man finds this kudzu and this hidden world underneath like, I really felt him, like, taking um, ownership of that thing, of the dark and the shadows, because he was free, I mean, he, and he was away from the eyes of other people. He could call it his own, which they don't really have anything to call their own. I thought it would be a descent kind of into madness, and I was right, but... Yeah, you said he didn't have to fight it anymore. No, he didn't. He just let go. There's this moment of letting go in there, where he's staring at it, and he's out in the, in the moonlight, and he just kind of accepts it. You know, up to that point, all we all we do is see him and that woman and the boy just kind of chatter at each other, try to make sense of where they are and what they're going to do next. And that's it for him. It's like home in some really weird way for this man that you can tell probably hasn't had one, you know, or if he has, it's been a long, long time. So going back to the shadow thing, you know, he in that kind of moment became a shadow to me because he stops trying to be a part of the outer workings and just 
goes into the inner workings and makes it his own and leaves the woman and the boy on the outside to kind of fend for themselves. These are not a clever group of people. <laughs> they, I mean, they're not smart enough to be grifters even. They right. just have to pull low-level shoplifting and, and stealing out of backyards to get things done. Yeah, I think the the man has a line in there where he's thinking and he kind of realizes this isn't more than it, the existence of a dog, I think is how he puts it, which is true. Like, they're not smart enough to even hoodwink anybody. They've got to push that shopping cart and they've got to go to the cafe and, you know, get the old bread and they've got to go behind the bar and get the cans and go get a few dollars for it. It's tough, you know, it's tough, but I don't know why that's kind of people I was drawn to write about, but I think they're all around us too. Like it doesn't take you very long in the course of a day if you live in you know, a community of any size or even of not any size to see people who very likely would be like this. You know, I mean, I was driving over here in the rain a few minutes ago and, you know, there's a guy with probably everything he's got in a garbage bag slung over his shoulder, just walking, trying to get to somewhere to get out of the rain. And you can tell he's got nowhere else to go. So these are the things I see and notice. And um, I guess I was just really drawn to write about it. And he would be most likely the one on the edge the most. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when he hears the whispers. That's right. And willing to listen. Yeah. In this valley, you've got kudzu all in the valley, and then up on the higher ground, you have a little bit of flat land at the top, and so people can have yards and such. But that that kudzu comes like right up to everybody's property line. Yeah. And so, you know, I was kind of thinking of the kudzu as the past, the mm. memories that are there just threatening to take us over all the time and, and break us because of their power. And they're just always there, right there on the edge. Right. That's very good. I like that. You know, they are on the edge. And um, I think part of that, too, and the way you put that is you also have to beat it back. You know, if you've ever seen somebody's house, like where it has kudzu, like running right up to the yard, it has to be cut because it will crawl right up to your house. And I think another relation kind of the past is that, you know, those vines have been there forever. They've been growing for a hundred years, maybe, you know. It can represent, you know, a lot of different things. You get the sense that they've seen everything that's going on in that town and that they'll always see everything that's going on in that town. And they're willing to participate. Well, yeah, I mean, you have the collective crimes of slavery and Jim Crow and all that just sitting there waiting to be dealt with. And everyone just kind of keeps them at bay just enough. Very well put. Absolutely. And, you know, I was uh, doing an interview the other day and the guy asked me, do you know how fast it grows? I said, no, I actually don't. So we Googled it while I was sitting there. He goes, oh, my God. And I said, what? He goes, this says under optimal circumstances of kudzu vine can grow a foot a day. I would have guessed, like, I think we guessed a foot a week sitting there, but a foot a day. And so you really get that sense of the past and those things creeping upon you and reaching out for you. They're uh, doing a little shoplifting in a drugstore, and he can't let it be. That's all it is. (laughs) He has to get mouthy and threatening with the shop girl working there. Right. Well, isn't that the fun of creating these people? (laughs) (laughs) You get to say what you want to say and, you know, poke the dog and, you know, whatever. You like saying crude things to 16-year-old girls working in drugstores? (laughs) No, and not the 16-year-old girls, but the pharmacist, you know, I don't know. There's been many times I'd like to shoot my mouth off and I don't. But so maybe writing these stories is my chance to do that. Just being a smart ass, just for the sake of being a smart ass. But you're right, he can't let it, for some reason, he can't just, they've, got, they've accomplished what they want to accomplish. He just can't 
get out of that store without making his comments and crossing that line with that girl to where, you know, they call up the law to come check them out. And so they've gone back to their broke down car yeah. and up comes Johnny Law. Yeah. That's the, the local sheriff, Meyer. Yeah. And as much as he does not like this guy, he's trying to give him every opportunity to get out of town in a peaceful way. He is, you know, um, what I really liked about those early scenes is you get a, a guy who's patient with him in Meyer, but you've got this man who any anybody with wearing any type of hat of authority, he just doesn't want anything to do with it, and he's not going to make it easy. You know, Meyer offers to help them get the car fixed. You know, he offers them a chance to come work down here, and you know, we'll get you something to eat. And the man just doesn't want anything to do with it. And I think this is the beginnings of Meyer seeing that, oh, not seeing. He doesn't see it for a a while what he's up against. But this is the early stages of, you know, he's meeting something here that he's not prepared for. You know, after 20, 25 years of being sheriff in this place where nothing happened. I mean, dragging a dead deer carcass off the highway so nobody hits it is like the extent, you know, of his excitement or catching a couple of kids parking where they shouldn't be. Wife warned him that he was going to get fat and lazy down there. That's right. And he does. And I don't know that when the man kind of snaps back at him or talks back to him, like as the writer too, I was excited for that as the storyteller, because I knew there was going to be a dynamic between those two that, you know, probably play out in the long run. Now, where would Red Bluff be if it actually existed? Well, I think it's roughly based off this little town outside of Oxford, about 20 miles called Water Valley, where I, I have a studio there where I go to work. That drive between Oxford and Water Valley along Highway 7, there's just mounds of kudzu, you know, and there's rises and falls and the hillsides and there's little creeks and there's like an old house that's covered up. So I think the past couple of years going back and forth between there, that's when I really began to notice this kudzu taking on a life of its own. And I just began to imagine things about it. And then I was working in this little town every day where there is a main street and like one of everything. And I think about 2,500 people live there. And those two things just kind of married together. It was helpful for me to be able to walk outside of my building there and look along the street and imagine it, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's kind of like rebounded now, which is great, you know. I've seen enough towns like it to be able to imagine it as right on the edge of falling into oblivion or just, you know, the the population and all just being nothing more than, you know, those people who grew up there and can't figure out a way to go anywhere else. Well, with Oxford getting so expensive in the past 10, 15 years, I'm sure it's a a good alternative for some folks. Yeah, I think it's starting to help. They're getting some spillover and, you know, some people are buying houses there, some of the older houses and remodeling them and things like that. There's two or three good restaurants and a coffee shop and soon they'll Isn't there like a little grocery there or something? There's a little grocery. Yeah, the BTC Grocery is a great place there. I hope I'll get a free lunch if they hear me say this because I go down (laughs) there all the time. But yeah, they're starting to get some help from Oxford, but they're also, this is important too. They're very proactive in trying to solve their own problems. You know, I mean, they work at it, which I think you've got to do. They've got a good core of people that really work at it, which you don't find in a lot of these places. That's something that Red Bluff is trying to do. They've said, we've got a lot of storefronts that are open. Any artist is welcome to come here. And as long as they live in town and maintain the property, they're welcome to set up studios in here. 
And this sets up one of the other tried and true openings for a book as a person comes back to town. Yep. Yep. We needed Colburn to come back eventually. I was kind of wondering how that was going to happen. But yeah, when we meet Colburn, it's 20 years later and he's, well, going back to being kind of a drifter. And, you know, once he finds out some things he finds out later on from his mother, kind of about why things are the way they are. He just like, I don't need anybody. I don't want anybody. But for some reason, he reads about this in the paper, wherever he is, and shows up. You know, he's a, what we call an industrial sculptor, I think is what I call him. And he takes junk and makes art out of it. So he shows up. And he shows up and, you know, he expects to sign a lease and expects to get some introduction to what all this entails. And he drives into town hall and the woman says, well, come on down here. I'll show you your building. And just hands him the key. And says, here you go. And he's like, well, is there nothing to sign? She's like, I don't know. You're the only one who showed up. <laughs> <laughs> Which further, I think, speaks to this town. Like, you can't give it away, more, more or less. <laughs> so he's come back, but he has had 20 years in the wilderness, essentially. Yeah, and he's been in, you know, we, later we find out it's been a rough 20 years. I think that's what, not in terms of the man and the woman and the boy, obviously, but, you know, he's been in some trouble, in and out of some trouble. And I think people who, you know, we talk about these shadows, we have these things we carry around. People who have those really heavy ones, they often tend toward that type of life. You know, my wife works with foster care for a while. And, you know, the things she's been privy to and the kind of kids she really works hard to try and help. And, you know, and even just trying to get families back together, too. Like, those are things that they're hard to shake. And I think they follow, especially children around like I said, for a long time. And, you know, people react to it differently, obviously, but one of those reactions is just to be like Colmore and to be out in the wilderness, so to speak. Now, he's looking around in space, working a bit, and young woman, redheaded woman named Celia, comes walking in, and she seems pretty uh, upfront. I was happy to meet Celia, to be honest. Yeah, she was definitely a bit of light in <laughs> yeah. this dark place. She's that gal in that small town who you look at and you wonder, what what are you doing here? But, you know, it's really interesting to me how comfortable she is in her own skin. Like, we have an ensemble of characters who maybe aren't so much, especially some of the lead ones. But Celia's very comfortable in who she is in her curly red hair and walking around barefoot and having this bar and kind of being the center of attention. And I think Colbert even asked her, or at least he considers it, like, what is she doing here? But you get the other side of the coin with her and that this is her home and she is happy with it. It's in her blood. And she realizes there are other things out there, but she's fine where she is. And there's a lot to be said for that, too. You know, that's not a feeling a lot of people can understand, but it's also a feeling a lot of people can understand, too. And I thought that dynamic worked well. I was very happy to kind of see that dynamic between Colburn and the wilderness and her being very comfortable with who she was and where she was. She's got two bits of history that are important. One is more immediate. Yeah. She's been seeing a guy named Dixon in town who doesn't know when to let go. Yeah. When Dixon showed up, I'm like, okay, here's the guy everybody's going to know. You know, everybody knows this guy from high school. Or that lived his glory days in high school and had the girlfriend that he wanted in high school, but now time has moved on and things aren't the same, but he can't let he can't let go of it, you know? Which speaks to the stagnation of the town, too. It's, it's emotional as well as physical. 
But Dixon was both kind of entertaining for me and, and but also heartbreaking too, in a way, because well, I don't know if he wants to be any better or not. He seems like he's trying, but he's almost like a dog chasing his tail, you know. He can't figure out if it's worth it or not. And he seems a little bit like the man because mm-hmm. if someone tells him something, he'll get his back up. That's true. It. That's a good point. If you know, he would do the right thing if no one would tell him to do the right thing, it <laughs> seems like. <laughs> that's right. That's for, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but I believe you're, I believe that's right, yeah. A bigger piece of older history that's important to the story, which she doesn't let Noan Colburn know about, that his dad and her mom had a professional relationship. Right. Well, my editor and I were talking about this after it was all said and done, and we're just kind of talking about gearing up for it. He made the comment that he thought this was the most kind of generational novel I've written so far, which I hadn't considered it up until that point, but then listening to him talk about it, I've kind of began to realize that too. About halfway through Blackwood, this really began to kind of feel like a story that you hear kind of retold, like from one generation to the next. Kind of like you, you know, I grew up in a bunch of little small towns and it's kids running around and he, and then you remember the stories when you're like a teenager and when you come back to that place, like, you know, this happened in that house over there. Don't go there. Or don't go down that alley. That's alley's haunted or, you know, things like this. Or don't go in the woods over there. It really began to take that on. And so I, the generational aspect of it too, things that have happened in the past in a small place, people can be tied together who don't realize they're tied together and have a great impact on one another. And it's almost like they sit around and tell stories long enough until they're going to make some connection. Like if you talk to anybody in Mississippi long enough, you're going to figure out you're relate, related <laughs> somehow. It felt that to me quite a bit. I didn't know what it was, you know, when they met or if it would happen. But when I realized it, I thought it was very kind of interesting piece to the puzzle in terms of where we were and what kind of story this was. Back to the man, the woman, and the boy. Those are their names throughout the entire story. Yeah. Why did you choose to keep them named that way? Well, when I started writing them, I didn't start with that intention. But as I started uh, putting their story together and like feeling who they were and how other people looked at them, how the man just rejected everything normal, I just couldn't put names on them. They just felt like a man, the man and the woman and the boy. I thought they had a strange sense of both no identity and a very specific identity. By the way other people looked at them and even treated them came the very specific identity. But then the no identities, they're like we talked about it being a dog's existence or like animals, you know. They are just hand to mouth from one moment to the next. And I couldn't see naming them and giving them like that specific. Any name will make you, for whatever reason, if you give somebody a name, you're going to think things, you know. If it's Bob or if it's, Cassandra or you'll associate, it with somebody. you'll associate it with someone or something. And I didn't like that at all. And I kind of waited on my editor to say something about that. But his comment was, I love that. You know, I want to leave that like it is. Do you want to leave that like it is? I said, I absolutely do. And at the beginning, it's, you know, heightens their sense of anonymity that the, the downtrodden, no one wants to know them. Right. Uh, but then it kind of developed in more into a sense of the elemental. Yeah, I think that's very well. Well put, you know, as it goes on, it becomes more of the the mysterious, the mysteriousness, is that a word? The Mysteriosity. Mysteriosity. (laughs) 
comes more of the mystery about that, uh, of what's going on. And kind of this unknown feeling of something's happening here, but we can't put our finger on it, and it's hidden somewhere out there. And so that kind of general notion, I thought, really played into it, you know, almost accidentally. Now, where they eventually wound up, did you drive past an area they said looks like, you know, that's where they would hole up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a few places along that Highway 7 where I drive back and forth. There's also a place in Oxford where I go running. There's a trail out by the south campus of Ole Miss. It's an old rail line that goes. It's like a six-mile trail that runs straight out in the woods. And there's this particular section out there where you run across, and the trail is, is kind of raised. And there's woods on each side, and the kudzu has grown all over it. And like when you hit that stretch, you can look down and like just see the drop. And like you can like just look down below the kudzu, and you know, real like life underneath there. I mean, it's, it's like a, a canopy. It's like an absolute canopy for a long, long stretch. You know, as I was working on this, I would be out there running, and just when I would hit that stretch, I'm like, this is perfect for someone like them. What better place to hide and make a camp or make a home, I guess, make a home for them, you know, to be honest. But yeah, there are some very real places there that I was seeing often when I was putting them in the valley, so to speak, or under the valley. Now, since I'm old enough, I remember the summer of 1976 really intensely. And I mean, it was bicentennial mania. Yeah. And if there was one thing that I kind of missed out of that, (laughs) I was going, man, they just should be some bicentennial mania in there somewhere. You're the second person who said that, and I hadn't, hadn't didn't think of it at all. Like I think we have family pictures somewhere of all me and my little sisters all dressed up for the bicentennial. But I heard that question like a week ago, and then hearing it now, I'm like, you know, this this is a town who probably wouldn't pay yeah. any attention anyway. Well, and I remember hearing at least up until World War II, a lot of southern towns wouldn't celebrate the Fourth of July because of bad feelings still over the Civil War. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that would make sense here too, particularly going back to kind of the grips of the past here and all the things that are hanging in the air, so to speak. Now, speaking of hanging in the air, we alluded to them once before, but people say there are voices coming from the kudzu. Yeah, some people do. <laughs> <laughs> some people do, and I think it depends on who you are, and I think it depends on uh, what you want to hear, you know, and if you're willing to listen. I can't explain it any better than that. Do you think those voices are everywhere, or are they peculiar to Red Bluff? Oh, man. I don't know. There are probably lots of places, you know? I mean, I think a lot of this does have to do with, um, you know, mental illness, and when things are not, like, taken care of or cared for. And I don't mean just the man here, either. You know, there's some people in this town who, well, Colbert himself could, could use a hand. Mm-hmm. And certainly Celia's mother. Um, the the way, twin's mother. And the help. twin's mother. But, you know, you don't get that in a place like this. And so you're kind of left to your own devices. And if, you know, people are talking about whispers from the valley, and my aunt said she heard a voice from the valley one time, or so-and-so said this, I mean, I think the people who want to hear that voice will hear it, you know, whether it's there or not. And then whether it's there or not legitimately, I guess, is up for the for the reader to decide. A couple of mechanical things I'd like to ask you about the writing. Mm-hmm. On the chapters, you don't have chapter numbers or chapter names. You just have these breaks and a little bit of kudzu at the top of each page. I was yeah. wondering the decision for organizing the book that way. 
Well, I don't know. As I went further along, you know, the chapters, there's a lot of kind of short chapters and almost little fragmented chapters. Sometimes they break off in the middle of the scene and then pick up right, right. again. And I didn't like the way chapter numbers felt on it, you know, kind of the same way I felt about the man, the woman, and the boy. I was just like, this is a different story to me, and those that doesn't feel right. My editor, he was the same way. So he's like, well, we got to do something. I said, well, why don't we just put some kudzu leaves there? So that's how the kudzu leaves came to be. But going back, you know, just didn't feel like chapter numbers was like the right thing to put. We needed chapter breaks, but it just felt different to me for some reason. I didn't want them there. And thankfully, nobody else did either, at least in my opinion. I'm I'm much happier with it this way. And I think it somehow adds something to the reading experience. And then some people may not notice it at all. I have no idea. Occasionally, you have dialogue kind of mashed together inside a paragraph with no quotation marks setting off, but then most of the dialogue is set off normally Mm -hmm. with line breaks and quotation marks. I was just wondering what about those little mashed together sections of dialogue, why they happened. Yeah, I don't know. As time has gone on and you know, everybody kind of develops their own style. I just kind of let it come out the way it comes out and then just leave it like that. I don't really sit there and consciously say, okay, I'm going to do this one like that and this one like that. It's just uh, more of in the flow and in the impulse and in, you know, the, the emotion of the moment, the stream of consciousness, maybe somewhat of the moment too. And so I just let it be, you know, I just let it be because it, it feels kind of natural coming out of me that way. I feel like if I start to manipulate it in any way, it might, you know, feel kind of clunky to the reader. I don't know. I mean, it's a stylistic thing, and I don't really have any rules for it. It's just one of those things that happens. Sounds like you're honoring your subconscious. Yeah, which is exactly how it needs to be for me, yeah. And also I noticed a couple of times, I think it's especially with a, a color, if you had an adjective along with a, a color, like cherry red. Mm-hmm. They were like one word. Yeah. I was just wondering if... I just like the way it looks. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I don't like hyphens for whatever reason. I like the way those words look together and feel together. Yeah, a little German in you just like to smash in words together? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's just another one of those impulse things where I like, I like that. I'm going to leave it like that. Now, we talked about it briefly before the interview started. You're a, an author on tour. And America is now having a bit of a crisis about the COVID-19 virus and what you should do to downplay our susceptibility to it. Just in a professional sense, how do you think it's going to affect your next few months promoting your book? Well, I don't know. Um, You know, the festivals, several literary festivals this spring have canceled. Virginia and L.A. Times postponed. And didn't you say you'd heard of another one? I think Tucson Tucson. canceled. the, The Southern... Young Adult, Southeastern Young Adult Festival canceled. Yeah, which, you know, you can't blame them. I'm sure there's a lot of authors out there who are, you know, calling their publicists and saying they don't want to go do this and they don't want to go do that, which is fine. Are you driving for most of your tour? I'm hopping on a plane tomorrow, but then uh, I come back and I have a little break and then I drive the rest of it. Not that big a concern to me. I mean, I got a text from my publicist as I was walking in here saying, you know, she's heard of like, bookstores canceling events, which I don't know. That that feels a little much to me. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the people they're inviting and whether or not they feel comfortable going or not. But, you know, at, at this point, it may affect me. It may not. I don't know. You just kind of got to go day by day and 
see what happens. And that's really what I'm doing. I'm in Memphis today and I'll be getting on a plane tomorrow. And as far as I know, I'll be coming back to Oxford on next Tuesday and then going again. So we'll see. And speaking of day to day, is there another book you're working on right now? Yeah, I've got something else that'll be out next year. I'm trying to stay one up. And I learned this back when I was waiting on Desperation Road to come out. You know, when you get a book done and turned in and copy edit and all that's done, I mean, you still got 12, 14 months before the book comes out. I learned to use that time to like to really work. And I wrote The Fighter when I was waiting on Desperation Road to come out. When I was waiting on The Fighter, I started on Blackwood and then finished it up right after. And then waiting on Blackwood, I you know, just got started on something else. So, you know, next year we'll have something else. Well, we look forward to it. Yeah, me too. I hope you like it. Michael, thanks so much for coming on Book Talk again. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Stephen. You too. Michael Ferris-Smith is the author of Blackwood, which is available from Little Brown. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.